your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're continuing, uh, just going chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're going to take the next three weeks to go through chapter 10. And that will lead us up to when Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in chapter 11. So after the next three weeks, we're going to take a break. And we're going to look at one of Paul's epistles for the rest of the year, the epistle to the Colossians. And then in January, we'll pick up with... Uh, right after Jesus enters Jerusalem in Mark, and it'll and we'll end Mark uh, right at, around Easter. So it'll work out that way um, to get to the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So that's where we're heading in our sermons over the next few months. Um, try to be in different parts of the Bible. We're in the Old Testament with Ezra and Nehemiah. We're looking at a gospel, and we're going to look at an epistle uh, because there's good stuff in every part of the Bible. So, let's read today Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Mark 10, 10, beginning verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how your word speaks about your faithful love to us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. As we consider these challenging topics of marriage and divorce, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts and minds through your word and through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, as we continue in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, we come to this passage about marriage and divorce. These are challenging and controversial topics now, just as they were back then. Uh, they're challenging topics in our culture. Now, you might hear, uh, sometimes the statistic gets thrown around, 50% of marriages will end in divorce. That's actually not true. Divorce rates have been going down since about 1980. But if current trends hold, about a third of marriages in the United States will end in divorce. But part of the reason divorce rates have been going down is that fewer people are getting married. More people are just living together, sometimes breaking up, uh, rather than getting married and divorced. Many people would say they've given up on the idea. Of marriage. Now, these are also challenging topics, not just in our culture, but also in the church, because biblical scholars and pastors don't all agree on how to interpret the Bible passages. So if you've been in different churches, you might know that even churches that agree that the Bible is authoritative and we should derive our teaching from Scripture ultimately above everything else can have quite different approaches and policies regarding divorce and especially remarriage after divorce, and that can be confusing. These topics are also challenging on a personal level because probably every one of us or nearly every one of us has been personally affected by divorce. Whether it, you grew up with divorced parents 
or whether you, uh, this has affected your extended family or close friends or whether you yourself have been through divorce. For some of us, this topic brings up painful memories, perhaps feelings of guilt and regret. Why did I ever marry that person in the first place? Or feeling confused and torn. Why couldn't they have worked it out? Whose side am I supposed to take? Divorce is often messy and complicated. So this is a challenging topic, and in just one sermon, there's no way that I can answer every question you might come with or every particular situation you might be facing. But as we look at Jesus' teachings, I pray that we would see that God's ways are good, that his word shows us the way that we should walk in, and that ultimately his word points us to the steadfast love of God that we can rely on above all else. So I want to look at this morning's passage under three headings. Number one, the Pharisees' question about divorce, verses 1 to 5. Number two, or verses 1 to 4, Jesus' response about marriage, verses 5 to 9. Third, concluding words to disciples, verses 10 to 12. So the Pharisees' question about divorce, Jesus' response about marriage, and concluding words to disciples. So first, let's look at the Pharisees' question about divorce. Now, verse 1 gives us the broader context of this passage. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem with his disciples, and he travels to a new area uh, on the east side of the Jordan. He teaches the crowds there, and the Pharisees once again show up with a question. They've done this a few times before, uh, and their question today is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, this was not a sincere question. The Pharisees are not someone who is in marital distress coming to Jesus and looking for counsel and saying, what do I do? I don't know what to do. The Pharisees are religious leaders who knew the Bible well, who claimed to follow it precisely, and they were trying to trap and trick Jesus with this question. You might say, how were they trying to trap him? Well, they were likely setting a political trap for Jesus because uh, the territory that Jesus entered into beyond the Jordan was Herod's territory. And it was also where John the Baptist had conducted his ministry. And if you remember, John the Baptist confronted Herod, who was the ruler of the area, because Herod had been married, but he fell in love with his half-brother's wife. And so he divorced his first wife, and Herodias divorced her first husband, Herod's half-brother, and they married each other. And John had been saying to Herod throughout the whole process, this isn't right. This isn't right. And eventually, Herod executed John and had him beheaded as a result. So if Jesus says, yes, it's okay for a man to divorce his wife in response to the Pharisees' question, then he seems to undermine everything John the Baptist stood for. And if he says no, then that might be one more reason for Herod to come after him. So there was a political trap behind this question. They were also setting an ethical trap. So there was an ongoing debate among Jewish scholars in Jesus' day about When is it okay for a faithful Jew to divorce? Now, this was not a debate about government policy. In Jesus' time, marriage and divorce were not regulated by the civil government. So you didn't need to go to city hall and get a marriage license to get married. You didn't need to go to court and get the judge to grant you a divorce, to be divorced. The government didn't regulate such things. These matters were arranged privately or between families. So this is not a debate that they were asking Jesus for his opinion on the government policy, but they were asking, what should a faithful Bible-believing person do? 
Now, some rabbis took a strict view. There was a rabbi named Shammai who said, divorce is allowed only in the case of sexual unfaithfulness or other very, very serious moral wrong. But most people took a much looser view. So here's several examples uh, of Jewish leaders who took much looser views. So Ben Sira was the author of a popular book of proverbial wisdom, and in that he said, if your wife does not accept your control, divorce her and send her away. Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote this in his, one of his books. At that time, I divorced my wife, not liking her behavior. Just a casual, throwaway comment in the course of his historical narrative. Rabbi Hillel said, even if she spoiled a dish, that was sufficient grounds for divorce. Rabbi Akiva said, even if he found another fairer than she, a man was justified in divorcing his wife. And notice that in all of these quotes, the assumption is only the husband can initiate divorce. Now, there are very rare examples of Jewish women, like Herodias, divorcing their husbands, but the general expectation in Jewish society was that only the man could initiate a divorce, and the only thing absolutely required was that he give his wife a written certificate to make it legal. And the Pharisees seemed to want to preserve that freedom for husbands to divorce their wives in a wide variety of circumstances. Notice Jesus' question in verse 3, what did Moses command you? And their answer is, Moses allowed us to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. The Pharisees weren't asking, what does God really want us to do? They were asking, what can we get away with? What's the minimum standard required? So they come to Jesus, trying to trap him with their question about divorce. But second, let's look at Jesus' response about marriage, verses 5 to 9. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, there are some commands in the Bible that express God's original intent for human beings. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Those commands express what God most deeply desires for human beings, for how we live and how we relate to him and how we relate to one another. Uh, but there are other commands in the Bible that seek to limit the negative effects of sin in a fallen world. And the command that the Pharisees referenced here is one of those commands. So turn back to Deuteronomy 24 page 195 in the Pew Bible. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 is uh, the longest section in the Old Testament law regarding divorce, and it's the verse that the Pharisees are referring to. It's the only one that mentions the certificate of divorce. Okay, so I, I want to read it so that you see what this law was actually saying. So Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, then, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord. 
So these verses are not describing a good situation. They're trying to limit the fallout of a bad situation. And the, this law uh, was trying to sort of do damage control, limit the fallout of a bad situation in at least two ways. Number one, the law protected divorced women by requiring that a written document be produced and personally delivered. That meant the matter would be clear, not ambiguous or debatable. Now, scholars have found several ancient Jewish certificates of divorce dating back to the 5th century BC, and all of them contain words to this effect. You are free to marry any man you wish. Sometimes it would say you are free to marry any Jewish man you wish because the idea was to marry within the faith. But here's the point. The certificate of divorce established that a woman was released from her marriage obligations, therefore she was free to remarry, and no one could accuse her of committing adultery against her former husband uh, by marrying another man. Right? Because if it was only a verbal thing, and the man said, I divorce you, leave my house, and then later she goes and marries someone else, and he says, I never said that, right? then you have a he said, she said problem. And the law prevented that, because it says it has to be written down so that it's clear what happened for everyone to know. So uh, this uh, law provided some legal protection for divorced women who were particularly vulnerable in the ancient world. Right? It wasn't easy, and sometimes it was hardly even feasible, to live as a single person, or particularly as a divorced woman, in the ancient world. Um, uh, so normally, the, normally if, if people had been divorced, they would almost always remarry, probably within a year or two. That was just the normal pattern. You might go home and live with your extended family for a while, but almost everybody, especially anyone who was of childbearing age, would seek to remarry. So the law protected divorced women who were particularly vulnerable, and second, the law discouraged hasty divorces. So think about this law from the husband's point of view. Right? From the husband's point of view, if you send your wife away and you give her that certificate that says she can marry any man she wants, you can't change your mind and go back later if she goes off and marries someone else. That's what the law says. So the point was, think twice before you divorce, because if one spouse goes off and gets remarried, there's no further possibility of being reconciled and rebuilding your marriage. So that's what this law was meant to do, to protect divorced women and to discourage hasty divorces. But here's the problem. The Pharisees had twisted this command to make it do the opposite. The Pharisees were trying to use this command to justify easy divorce rather than discouraging hasty divorce. They wanted to justify easy divorce. All I have to do is write the certificate, see the certificate's mentioned in the law, that makes it legal. And the Pharisees also wanted to preserve male power. They wanted only men to be able to divorce their wives, not the other way around. So, I think you can see that's why Jesus accused the Pharisees. That's why Jesus says in verse 5, back to Mark, verse 5, because of your hardness of Moses wrote you that commandment. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you are being hard-hearted. You are twisting scripture to make it, to, to try to use it in the opposite way that God intended. 
You're taking a scripture meant to discourage hasty divorce and you want to justify easy divorce. You're taking a scripture meant to protect divorced women and trying to uh, uh, preserve male power above all else. So when the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus with their tricky question, Jesus doesn't immediately jump down into the details of when exactly might divorce be the least worst option. No, he doesn't go there. He reminds the Pharisees of God's original purpose for marriage in verses 6 to 9. You know, if you're looking for what the Bible says about any given topic, don't just search for isolated Bible verses here and there. Especially don't just search for isolated Bible verses that tend to confirm what you really want to think. A good way to start is by remembering the big picture of the Bible. And the big picture of the Bible you can summarize in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, glory. Creation, God made us in his image. He made the world. He made it for good. Fall, because of sin, we've been corrupted by sin. And there's all kinds of effects of sin and the fall that we experience in the world, but Jesus came to redeem us and bring us back to God and set us back on the right path, and we're headed for glory when Jesus returns. So Jesus goes right back to the beginning of the Bible, to the story of creation. Look down at verse 6. Jesus says, remember why God invented marriage in the first place. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now notice how Jesus emphasizes this idea of two becoming one. Joined together by God. Twice he says, the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. And then he says, God has joined them together. And that's what God intended marriage to be, two becoming one and holding fast for life. And it's not two of the same things becoming one. It's two fundamentally different but corresponding entities becoming one and holding together. So notice the logic of Jesus' argument. He starts with Genesis 1, God made us in his image male and female. He made two biological sexes, both of which are absolutely necessary for the propagation of the human race. If the human race were all male or all female, reproduction would be impossible. But God also designed male and female bodies in such a way that they fit together in an utterly unique way. It is literally impossible to arrange human bodies in any more intimate way than a male and a female body during sexual intercourse. It's most it's literally a picture of two becoming one flesh. And even the possibility of producing life out of that. See, that's the see, see, sexual union is the embodiment of marriage. And that's why God tells us that sexual union and sexual intimacy belong within the whole life union of marriage and never outside it. You see, the physical union is meant to embody and accompany the whole life union. So God's design for marriage from the beginning is that two fundamentally different entities would come together and become one and hold together for life. And when we go beyond the creation story and look at the rest of the Bible, we see why God designed marriage in this way. Because the rest of the Bible shows us that marriage is not only uh, something that's good in itself, but is meant to point us to something even greater. Two 
marriage is meant to point us to not just two people becoming one and holding together for life, but God and his people becoming one and holding together for all eternity. So in the Old Testament, the relationship between God and the people of Israel is described as a marriage. God is the husband, Israel is the wife. And in the New Testament, the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church, his people, is described as a marriage. Christ is the husband, and the church is his bride. And at the end of the Bible, we see a vision of heaven, the dwelling place of God, and earth, the dwelling place of human beings, coming together and being married. Right? God has come to dwell with his people forever. And so you see, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, and in glory, marriage is just a picture of God and his people being united together and staying together and holding together and being full of love and joy and wonder for all eternity. So marriage is about two becoming one, holding together for life, a picture of God and his people coming together and holding together for eternity. It's meant to be intimate and exclusive, life-giving and lifelong. So Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, whatever your experience of marriage has or has not been, I hope you can see that God's design for marriage is a stunningly beautiful picture. Even if you have never seen or experienced anything that looks anything close to that, I hope that you can see the beauty and grandeur of God's design. That male and female coming together in marriage is a picture of God and his people being joined together for all eternity, the promise that any one of us can receive simply by turning to Jesus. And he promises, I will be yours, and you will be mine forever. Marriage expresses the heart of God himself, who has committed himself to us in steadfast love. So, for those of us who are married, Let's cultivate our marriages so that they increasingly reflect God's good and beautiful purpose. God has joined us together, so let's do all that's in our power to preserve and protect and deepen that union which is precious in God's sight. So let me encourage us, those of us who are married, never stop growing in your relationship with your spouse. Now that'll look different in the changing seasons of life. It looks different when you have little children running around at home. It looks different if you're facing health challenges later on or with work situations or whatever may come your way. But let every season of life be an opportunity to draw closer to one another and draw closer to the Lord together. And to face the challenges of life together and grow stronger and deeper through them. Also, let's not allow anger or resentment to build up. Not allow conflicts and problems to smolder under the surface and not be addressed. You know, my natural instinct is to avoid conflict as much as possible. But you know, sometimes conflict is necessary for growth. And marital unity and joy can be even sweeter on the other side of working through a hard conflict together. So if your spouse comes to you with a concern, don't shut them down. It might not be pleasant to listen at first, but if your spouse feels that you have really listened to them and worked hard to understand your concern, you've probably made progress already by just doing that, by listening well. Finally, don't ever think that your
your spouse is the only person who needs to change. That's always a foolish perspective. <laughs> Marriage is intended by God to refine every one of us, every last sinner among us all. Each of us is a work in progress. And marriage is one of the tools that God uses us to refine us and shave off our rough edges and help us become more like Jesus. Marriages can be hard. It's hard for two fundamentally different people to come together as one and hold together for life. But it's worth persevering in, and it's worth pursuing. So, We've seen the Pharisees' question about divorce. We've seen Jesus' response about marriage. Finally, the passage ends with some concluding words to disciples, verses 10 to 12. The passage ends with a follow-up conversation between Jesus and his disciples in the house. And so I want to end with some concluding words to those of us who are committed, who are seeking to follow Jesus. Whether you're single, married, widowed, or divorced, whatever your experience or status might be. Now maybe, at this point in the sermon, you have more questions, and I haven't addressed them. And guess what? Jesus' disciples did too. Verse 18, his not 18, verse 10. In the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. We aren't told exactly what question they asked Jesus, but we are given Jesus' response in verses 11 to 12. And Jesus' response in verses 11 to 12 addresses some of the attitudes, the wrong attitudes that the Pharisees displayed in the beginning. So remember, the Pharisees wanted to justify easy divorce by saying, all you have to do is make it legal, write that certificate, then you can go off and marry whoever you please. And look, Deuteronomy 24 mentions the certificate, so that means it's legal. But Jesus says in verse 11 and 12, just because it's legal doesn't make it right. Herod gave his first wife a certificate of divorce, but it wasn't right for him to leave her and marry Herodias, who was married to someone else. You see, Jesus calls his disciples not just to, do, to dot our I's and cross our T's and make it legal, but he calls us to purity, integrity, and unselfish love at the heart level. Second, remember the Pharisees wanted to preserve male power. They wanted the man to have the right to divorce and not the woman so that the man could hold it over his wife's head. But notice how different is Jesus' attitude toward women in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, Jesus honored wives as well as husbands. So verse 11 says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. You might say, well, who is against her? Well, I think it means against his first wife. Wouldn't make sense to say against the second wife or the second. Uh, uh, it's whoever divorces wife and marries another commits adultery against the wife who he divorced and went and married someone else. Now that was not the common thinking in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, every other rabbi said the husband is always the offended party. So. A man who seduces another man's wife commits adultery against her husband. That's how they would have put it. Everything would always in reference to the man being wrong. But Jesus says the woman can be wrong just as much as the man can be wrong. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul made a similarly remarkable statement in 1 Corinthians 7.4. So listen to this statement from the Apostle Paul. He says, the wife, he's talking about marriage. He says, the wife doesn't have authority.
over her own body, but the husband does. And the Pharisees would have said, oh yeah, that's right. But then listen to the next sentence. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Right? Paul's saying marriage is not about one spouse domineering or overpowering the other. It's about a one flesh union. What God intended all the way back in Genesis. Right? Of love and respect. So Jesus honored wives as well as husbands. And in verse 12, Jesus also held women responsible for their actions as well as men. Again, there were occasional examples of Jewish wives divorcing their husbands, and it was more common in the Gentile world than the Roman world, even though it was still uh, not, the, not the majority. The majority of divorces were initiated by husbands. But Jesus challenged the Pharisees' attitudes, right? By in, he's not trying to preserve male power above all else. He's honoring women alongside men, uh, and he's saying just because it's legal doesn't make it right. Now, the more challenging question related to verses 11 and 12 is this. In these verses, Jesus doesn't mention any specific situations where divorce and remarriage are permitted. And so some Christians have read these verses and said, there are no such situations. Divorce and remarriage are always sinful. Never divorce if you can help it, and never remarry after divorce. Now, if this were the only passage in the Bible that addressed these matters, that might be an appropriate conclusion. However, there are other passages, including Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, that describe horrible situations, hard-hearted violations of the marriage covenant like adultery and abandonment, and in, those, and it, in which divorce is allowed or unavoidable. Now, I think here's a helpful principle to remember. When the Bible states a general rule, it doesn't always clarify in every instance whether or not there are occasional and unusual exceptions to the rule. So, for example, in the Ten Commandments it says, don't bear false witness. That means don't lie or deceive others. Period. End of sentence. However, if you read the Old Testament, there are two instances where people are praised for acting deceptively. Rahab is praised for hiding the Israelite spies from the men of Jericho who wanted to kill them. And the Egyptian midwives in Exodus were praised for deceiving Pharaoh when Pharaoh wanted to kill the Hebrew baby boys. Now, do those exceptions in unusual circumstances invalidate the general rule, don't lie or deceive others? No. They're not a license to lie and deceive whenever you don't like somebody. But if a merciless predator is trying to kill people, it's okay to deceive the predator intentionally and not tell them the truth. Now, if you're going to teach children about the importance of telling the truth, you don't start with Rahab and the Egyptian midwives. <laughs> right? You start with the Ten Commandments. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie or deceive. And that's what Jesus does here. The emphasis of Jesus and Mark is not on possible exceptions, very ugly situations in which divorce is the least worst option. But Jesus' focus here is the general rule. So I'm not going to try to parse out in this sermon exactly in what horrible situations might divorce be uh, 
the least worst option, but I want to focus on Jesus' emphasis here. Okay, I do think those situations exist based on other passages of Scripture, but I want to focus on Jesus is reminding us of God's purpose for marriage here. That's the main point he wants us to walk away with and not get distracted in the weeds of some of those other questions. But finally, um, I want to speak to those of you who have heard Jesus teaching about marriage, and perhaps you know that you have fallen short. Now the reality is, every one of us fits in this category because we've all fallen short in many different ways. But maybe, as I'm talking about marriage and divorce, maybe that's a topic that brings up feelings of guilt and regret, feelings that you have failed in a past marriage. Or, on the other end, maybe it brings up feelings of hurt, betrayal, abandonment, where you've been on, where you've been wrong. A few years ago, I preached a sermon on this topic, and I asked two people in our old church who had been divorced, what scriptures helped you in the process of your divorce or following that? So I want to close with the two scriptures that these people shared with me and hope that they may speak to us. The first scripture that someone shared was Ephesians 5, 11 to 14, which says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. When anything...